Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture Magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. On today's program, I'll take you inside one of the final rehearsals for Lyric Opera's upcoming production of Fiddler on the Roof. The dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel, will join me to share their review of the world premiere play National Merit. Later in the show, we'll revisit my interview with the author of a new B.B. King biography. Plus, we'll have a piece about an innovative speaker system that was designed to showcase sound art. All that's coming up. Thanks for making time for Arts and Culture this morning. This is what it sounded like at one of the final rehearsals for Lyric Opera's upcoming musical production of Fiddler on the Roof. The gigantic production, which opens September 17th, will feature a large cast, chorus, and a 40-plus piece orchestra. A legendary creative team of Jerry Bach, Sheldon Harnick, and Joseph Stein originally brought Fiddler on the Roof to life on Broadway in 1964. 58 years later, the musical about a Jewish family coping with changing times at the turn of the century is still as relevant as ever. That initial production ran for over 3,242 performances. There have been five Broadway revivals, countless international productions, and hundreds of high schools across the country put it on every year. The Lyric Opera production has all the classic songs, the time period and characters are the same, but this isn't your parents' fiddler on the roof. Acclaimed director Barry Kosky's reimagined version has garnered rave reviews since it opened in Berlin in 2017, and now it's set to make its North American premiere in Chicago. I recently visited the Lyric Opera House to check out a rehearsal. I caught up with Kosky to talk about his approach to the material and his personal connection to Fiddler on the Roof. So if we go back to the, the beginning, beginning, what was your introduction to Fiddler on the Roof? I was a seven-year-old excited boy in Melbourne, Australia, and I discovered in my parents' record collection, so we're talking about early 70s, mm-hmm. the recording of the Broadway production with Zero Mistel in their record collection and used to dance around to the whole show in my bedroom before knowing what the story was about, who the characters were, or seeing the film. And so it's, it's it literally, whenever I hear the music, it takes me back to my bedroom hot summer night in Australia yeah. in the early 70s um, and then you know I, like like most people I see the film and you see productions and you know because I had such an interest in musicals as well as opera when I was growing up when I was older a bit older than seven and I found out about you know that my f- grandfather uh, was born in a shtetl very much like Anatevka and that my great-grandfather was the caretaker of a synagogue in a small shtetl in Bela, um, Russia, like the village of Anatevka. I realized that in fact it was actually part of, the musical was actually a sort of retelling of of a very similar uh, village from where my family came from, part of my family. So this then had a personal, I had a personal connection with the piece. 
Fast forward a couple decades, and Kosky, who was the artistic director for one of Berlin's most prestigious opera companies, decides to approach the musical that he had such a personal connection with. It stayed in my head for a number of years, sort of marinating, waiting for the opportunity to come out. So for me, in the last sort of 15 years, I've been working mainly in Berlin uh, and running an opera house and the commercial opera, um, which is one of the three major opera houses in Berlin. Um, they mounted in the uh, late 60s um, a very famous production of Fiddler on the Roof, the first German production of it, and it ran for 27 years in repertory in, in my opera house and was a very famous production in East Germany, it was behind the wall. Mm -hmm. So I decided to mount uh, for the 70th anniversary of my opera house in Berlin, a new production of Fiddler on the Roof. So we originally conceived this production uh, in end of 2017 in German um, and have played it in France to in French. So now we bring it to Chicago to do it in its original language in English. So it's quite an interesting journey. Obviously, Fiddler on the Roof is widely known, massively popular. It's a, a musical that, that's mounted quite a bit. For our listeners, how would you describe how your version differs from maybe a, a more traditional production of it? Well, it's very different. Firstly, it's been presented in an opera house, so we have uh, a proper op opera orchestra of around 40 musicians, which... For an, for an opera is actually very few, but for a musical it's enormous. If you go and see a musical on Broadway now, you're lucky to get 13 or 14 instruments in the orchestra. So what's so joyful about this, you have a proper string section, proper brass section, and it sounds fantastic, and it's played by an opera orchestra. We also have the opera chorus, the lyric opera chorus, um, and the production was conceived with a very large chorus, which is very unusual for uh, a Broadway musical. So we have over 100 people on stage. So people, I think, will be seeing a production that is designed for a large theatre and large emotions, but still has enormous intimacy. And the second thing that I've tried to do is I've tried to blow the dust off the piece. Any masterpiece, uh, whether it's a play or a, a, a symphony or a musical or an opera, uh, it accumulates dust on it over the years. So uh, I think one of the jobs of a director and a, and a conductor and also the performers is to try and blow that dust off the piece, which we, I think we've done. Would you say there's also a new visual aesthetic with a, a special attention paid to the stage design? We present a very different visual world. The production is the piece. Audiences should not be frightened. They're going to see a, a village in 1905. <laughs> it's historical production. We play all the music. We say all the words. There's no changes there. But I have found other metaphors for the world on stage. And one of the ways we wanted to convey this idea of the village was the set is made up of hundreds of pieces of furniture. So there are no doors, traditional doors or walls. People come through wardrobes and, um, uh, and, and, and make their entrances and exits through pieces of furniture. Um, and this conveys, I think, the cacophony of the shtetl and also the... Um, the uh, claustrophobia of the place and also the fact is that it gets dismantled and it's as they say in the second half they have to leave the village but they don't have any, they don't shouldn't take anything because they're just bits of, of wood uh, a table a chair and 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 this creates a very interesting world for the audience to visually if you're just tuning in you're listening to the arts section i'm gary zydek i'm talking with acclaimed opera director barry kosky about his version of fiddler on the roof which is getting its north american premiere at lyric opera 
Let's listen to a little bit of rehearsal. This is Stephen Skybell performing the classic, If I Were a Rich Man. If I were a rich man, all day long, I'd If I were a wealthy man, I wouldn't have to work. If I were a really, really rich, idle man, I'd build a big, tall house with rooms by the dozen right in the middle of the town. A fine tin roof with real wooden floors below. There would be one This is Stephen Skybow one of the stars of Lyric Opera's new production of Fiddler on the Roof. Just for show! I'd fill my yard with chicks and turkeys and You talk about blowing the dust off. I read this, I think it was an op-ed or maybe it was a review in the LA Times back in 2018 when that Berlin production was still going, I think, or maybe in its second run. And it referenced these statistics that there was a rise in anti-Semitic crime in, in Germany, specifically around that time. Is that something that you wanted to, to confront as you were reimagining this new version? Interestingly enough, as a, as a Jewish artist living in Berlin and working in Germany in the 21st century, one of the reasons why I mounted, wanted to mount the production was not to explore any themes of anti-Semitism because I wanted to explore the themes of hate. And I think that anti-Semitism is one form of hate. I don't like to separate anti-Semitism from any other form of hate, whether it's uh, to do with gender or race. Uh, um, And um, for me, it's very important that the piece is not just about Jews in Eastern Europe or a Jewish village or anti-Semitism, that the piece is about what happens to people when they are forced to leave their homeland for being who they are. And this must resonate with uh, non-Jewish audiences too. Uh, if it's just a piece about Jews for Jews, it doesn't really interest me. And you should be able to see this production and this piece and it doesn't matter if you are a Muslim family from Damascus or an immigrant family from Mexico or um, a family that that tried to get out of Nigeria or Kenya and come to Europe on a boat. It doesn't matter what background you come from. The themes of the the musical and, and, and what I've tried to convey in the production is to say through the specificity of the Jewish story, it becomes a universal story. And this is much more important for me. So for me, the overriding idea to do the production and the overriding is really not about anti-Semitism. It's to talk about what happens when a group of people are hated. And um, we see that all around the world, unfortunately, uh, in virtually every country, and it never goes away. So the piece is timeless in that respect. Also, I guess, in a a way, did your lens change at all with the events that have been transpiring in Ukraine? This is set in in Russia. I mean, the Ukraine uh, war is a catastrophe for Europe and the world. 
But it's not the first time in the last year or so that we've had problems around the world. I mean, just because it's in the middle of Europe doesn't mean that other um, uh, areas of the world or other wars should receive less attention. I think that we live in a time where there is still so much tension between countries or within countries. This is this this we've never learnt uh, lessons in the last thousands of years. And what's rather terrifying is when you're sitting in a rehearsal here in Chicago and they're talking, you know, this text which was written for a Broadway stage in the 60s, and you think you're in a documentary film. Um, uh, from the middle of Europe now, this is nothing but shocking and rather terrifying. You have alluded to it with the ideas that you went into this with. Do you have hopes for what audiences take away? I mean, the good thing about this production is that we know it's a successful show because it's been hugely successful in Europe. So I'm not coming to think how will, how will the audiences respond. I'm sure they respond very enthusiastically to it. I'm sure they will. I, I don't like, as a director, I've never liked to assume what the audience should think or feel. Um, I present a world on stage uh, in any show I do, which has lots of doors that you can go through in terms of your appreciation or understanding of the piece. What I do hope about this production is that the audiences are taken on, on a journey, and that journey involves laughter and tears. It's still very unusual when you think about the themes of the piece and particularly what happens in the second act where it gets quite bleak and, they, and these people have to leave their village. It's still very unusual for a Broadway musical to be dealing with these subject matters, but that's why I think the piece is so brilliant because it uses the guise of popular American musical entertainment to tell very serious themes or to discuss very serious themes. And, um, and, and very successfully too. And I just hope the Chicago audiences can simultaneously have a great night out in the theater, you know, three hours of singing and dancing and, and wonderful performers. On the other hand, to take home with them um, the resonances of the themes of the production and of the piece um, and to think about, you know, their role in the world and what it would be like uh, to be like that. And I think most people, who have come from immigrant families uh, connect this piece very, very, very strongly. And that's what I hope too. I mean, theatre can't change the world. I mean, nothing I do on stage at the Lyric Opera is going to shift anything on a global stage. But you can give a few thousand people in an enclosed space on one evening uh, an experience that touches them and moves them and makes them think, then that's my job well done. How did Chicago end up being the site for the North American premiere? Uh, very easy. I'm, I'm, I'm very good friends with Anthony Freud, the general manager of the Lyric Opera. I've known him for a long time, and um, he came and saw the production uh, very early on, I think early 2018, and loved it and said, we have to bring it to Chicago, this would be perfect. And because Lyric Opera mount a musical every year, it was great because Anthony believes, like I do, that the American musical is part of the family tree of opera and operetta and music theater and that it, it is not uh, outside the structure of an opera house to, to, to do these pieces. And, um, and I said, yes, okay, great. Um, I'd love to bring it to Chicago. Um, but I said, it has to be done like the Berlin production with an opera orchestra and an opera chorus, but with singing actors, the, the soloists cannot be opera singers. A lot of the time, opera singers uh, perform in musicals and it, it very rarely works. 
they don't have the skills in terms of spoken language and you need actors who can sing rather than uh, singers who can act in Prison on the Roof. So we auditioned for the lead roles in, on Broadway a few months ago and that's why we have about 10 performers in the cast who are from New York uh, and for the leads, they're Broadway performers and they're, they're doing a fantastic job. Are you enjoying your time in Chicago? I am indeed. I came to Chicago last time when I was about 40 years ago. Um, and during winter <laughs> and I remember the cold <laughs> this was this was before climate change too so it was really cold and um, and yeah I never got back I came here with my parents and um, I remember never feeling never having experienced cold like this so it's <laughs> it was it's been fabulous in the last four weeks to be sitting in Chicago with this glorious weather and having a wonderful time Barry thanks so much pleasure lovely to be here that's director Barry Kosky. He's the creative behind Lyric Opera's upcoming production of Fiddler on the Roof. It opens Saturday, September 17th and runs through October 7th. You can find more information at lyricopera.org. And you are listening to the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm being joined now remotely by the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Good Gary. Good morning, Gary. Boho Theater is presenting the world premiere of its first ever commissioned work, a play titled National Merit. It's by Northwestern grad Valen Marie Santos and directed by Boho Artistic Associate Enrico Spada. The play follows seven high school juniors taking a test prep course as they strive to become national merit scholars. The pressures of high school are often explored in film and TV, though I'm not sure how many contemporary works of theater have waded into these waters. Carrie, we'll start with you. What did you think of national merit? You know, I think it's very good at capturing the the absolute angst and uh, teach-to-the-test anxiety. This is a private school very high, you know, very high achieving kids and uh, very much in competition with themselves and with each other. Um, it all takes place in one, in, in the one, mostly in the one classroom. There are a couple, you know, scenes that are implied to take place outside. Uh, so there is a sense that it's a bit of a John Hughes uh, riff. You know, we've got the, you know, we've got the cheerleader who's actually already taken the, the PSAT. She's just there to kind of literally cheerlead and be the, the student assistant for this class. There's, you know, there's kind of the jock broy guy. There's kind of the weird girl. There's it's the different types of tropes. But I do think the play, for the most part, does a pretty good job of overcoming those stereotypes and giving us a little glimpse into just how pressure cooker this world is. And I think it's worse than it was when I was a student. I don't know what your high school experience was like, but I mean, I took the PSAT and there was no, you know, maybe my parents just had low expectations. They knew how terrible I was at math, but there was no, oh my God, if you don't become a National Merit Scholar, then your life is over. I do feel like kids now are operating at, you know, there's this heightened level, particularly kids from the, the world that we're seeing in this play, that it, it just becomes more than some can bear. And that is a theme that comes out um, repeatedly um, in, in, in the play. Well, you know, these high school students are prepping for the PSA National Merit Scholarship Test, 
using a private tutor and a tutoring company, prepping company, brought in by their high school. Uh, as you noted, the students are a multicultural group with impressive talents and ex- extracurriculars, and all of them under pressure to succeed. Uh, and the sources that, of that pressure, how they deal with it, are the substance of the play's many scenes, which the form is that they count down from 30 days before the exam to the day immediately after the exam. It doesn't go through all of the 30 days, but it goes like scene one is 30 days, and the next scene is 25 days, and the next scene is 21 days, and so forth. You make some jumps. Now, you know, back in the late Jurassic, when I was in high school, (laughs) there wasn't any prepping for these tests. You took the Mm -hmm. PSAT, and then in due time, you took the SATs for college admission, and there was no prepping or study. You just went. You know, the high school has done their best with you to, to, to teach you how to do math and teach you something about English, and, uh, and you just went in and, and did your best. And I understand it's much, much more of a, of a pressure cooker now for, for various reasons, and this play certainly explores some of them, but not all of them. Uh, Playwright Santos attempts to let us see under the skins of all of the students and also the instructor, whose name is Alex, and also the senior mentor assistant named Jenny. And Santos uses several techniques to do this, mostly realistic scenes, but also, uh, Carrie, as you already suggested, a few monologues and non-realistic scenes. I think that's all fine. It's all fine, but as the play runs only 90 minutes, it's kind of inevitable that some characters receive more focus and depth than others. And I think that's the weakness of the play at the moment. Not that I think it's a bad play or a weak play. I think the playwright has genuine talent and a lot of strength. But in its current form, it leaves us, or at least it left me, wanting more, to know even more about some of the less developed characters. And I think it could do it if it ran another 10 or 15 minutes instead of just 90 minutes if it ran 100 mm-hmm. or 105 minutes. Um, a few of the moments, such as when the senior mentor, who's already in college, she's a senior, does a, a cheerleading routine, it's very theatrical, and I get the point it's trying to make for that character, but it doesn't really add much to the play because we are given very little else, very little other information about this particular character. Um, as for the six other students who are actually prepping for the exam, uh, we get to know three of them pretty well, and the others not so well, although I will say that the emotional beats that Santos gives them all ring true, and I found her dialogue to be very sharp and pithy, very economical. Yeah, I would say there's kind of a, a reference to John Hughes. I don't know how many people saw the Reese Witherspoon dark comedy election, but there's kind of an element of that. There's a school council election that's going on, and it's sort of woven in as a subplot. To me, that felt like a distraction and it was it, it, it serves as a plot point, but it didn't actually feel like a real earned sense of conflict to me. So I think that, that is maybe one place if if uh, the playwright continues to look at the script that they can either you know build that up as more of an important you know plot point or dispense with it in order to really just focus on the way that these kids are both trying to connect with each other yet also in such competition with each other that those connections become harder and harder to face. I also thought it was really quite interesting that towards the end of the play, you know, this 
you know, the, the, uh, the instructor, the tutor, who's been taking this very kind of hard-edged, you know, approach, he begins to see that maybe the way we're doing things is not right. Maybe this isn't actually preparing them for what we actually need to be preparing them for in life. We get a hint of that with uh, one of the young women who isn't actually in the school anymore. And we, without giving anything away, we find out why she left the school, but she does still come back to this PSAT prep. She tells them, you know, schools aren't even using these tests anymore. There is a, you know, a shift, which I hope is true, that uh, this whole teach-to-the-test mentality is kind of you know, going away because I do think that it's unsustainable. And it's probably not the best marker of how people learn, how they process, how they collaborate with others, and all the other sort of uh, skills that we need in life that are very hard to put onto a standardized test, as we know. Uh, so I think maybe a little bit more focused on that um, would let some of the, you know, let, let us just see who these kids are when they're not in this pressure cooker world and what this pressure cooker world does to really, you know, affect the way that they relate to each other. I think that's kind of the real heart of the story when it when it's fully present. I, I find I, I found the show quite compelling. Uh, I I agree with you, and the the uh, the one situation you mentioned, the election for class president, and the two students who are uh, engaged in that. Those are among the the students who are less well developed in right. the play, and so your point and my point uh, are kind of uh, right, both right. sides of the same coin. Right. Know? If we have to care more about them in order for this election yeah, to have, yeah. you know, dramatic impact on yeah, us, I think. Yeah, yeah. I enjoyed the production. I I think the uh, it was directed by Enrico Spada, and it's a very vigorous and physical staging uh, in a uh, in a classroom setup that's well designed for the intimate theater with space in a theater that seats uh, perhaps uh, 150 people or fewer altogether. It's a classroom uh, that is strewn with self-help slogans on the wall, such as, make an effort, not an excuse. I also enjoyed the work of the company. All eight of the actors are, are actors I've not seen before, right. all of them, and yeah. uh, I would like to see them again. Yeah, and they definitely, I don't know how old they are, but I never felt like I was watching people who are too old to be playing high school students. That can sometimes be a problem. That really can, you know, affect believability if you're looking at actors and thinking they're just they're just not really quite right for the this age group. I definitely believed them and um yeah, I, I found the the casting and the production values to be of a very high quality. So I think it's definitely worth checking out. Um I think also, you know, we've talked a lot about digital productions. My understanding is that this was done a few times during the shutdown as a staged reading, so it went through a bit of a development process in the digital realm for Boho, um, which I think is probably something a lot of playwrights went through. And it will be interesting to see what that means as far as what playwrights are hearing, what they're picking up on. You know, of necessity, you could not have the, you know, the live workshop sorts of uh, presentations that sometimes can uh, help iron out problems on their feet. So, yeah. This is, uh, the play is a very good effort by a young playwright, Valerie Marie Santos. Gary, you mentioned that this is the first play that Boho Theater has ever commissioned, and uh, their commitment to her work is precisely the sort of relationship an ambitious theater company should build with a talented writer. Exactly, and you know, we were talking last week about the, you know, what's been going on with the fall theater season, and I think you and I both, Jonathan, noted that you know, and some theaters are playing it a little safe. Boho certainly is taking on a, a, a new playwright who does not have a name yet and uh, giving giving the work a really, really 
fully realized and I thought visually very strong production as well. So I agree we should definitely be applauding and encouraging that. Okay. Boho Theater's National Merit continues through September 25th at Theater Wit. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome, Carrie. Ladies and gentlemen, how about a nice warm round of applause to welcome the world's greatest blues singer, the king of the blues, B.B. King! My name is Gary Zydek. You're tuned into the arts section. The late, great blues icon B.B. King would have turned 97 on Thursday. He passed away in his sleep at the age of 89 in the spring of 2015, but his legacy still is very much alive. The recent book, King of the Blues, The Rise and Reign of B.B. King, offers a comprehensive look at the legend's life and career. It follows the journey of Riley Blues Boy King as he grows up in rural Mississippi, eventually moves to Memphis, and then tours the globe as one of the most celebrated blues musicians of all time. The biography comes from Maryland-based journalist Daniel DeVise. He spent years researching the book, trying to uncover new pieces of information not highlighted in previous King biographies. King of the Blues offers an engaging portrait of an artist who drew inspiration from unexpected places and created a style of guitar playing that still reverberates today. I caught up with DeVise last year when the book came out. The first thing we talked about was the author's connection to Chicago and his appreciation for the blues. I read that you grew up in Chicago or the Chicago area. Are you a fan of the blues from your time growing up here? Yeah, I grew up in the city. And, um, you know, from my teenage years, uh, when I could, I I would get into the blues uh, venues, the small ones, and I saw Otis Rush and Sun Seals, uh, James Cotton, gosh, Otis Clay, m- most of the big guys. And, um, they, you know, a bunch of these people were basically disciples of B.B. King, you know, who had taken his sound and, and run with it, basically, on the guitar. The book that you wrote, King of Blues, The Rise and Reign of B.B. King, it, it starts in the introduction with a, a little uh, anecdote uh, set in uh, the Cook County Jail as King is preparing to, to play a concert for the inmates. Whatever we call him, I know him to be just a fine, warm human being full of humility. Would you please come forth, Mr. King? Why did you want to start there? What did you want readers to know right off the bat? Oh, wow. Um, yeah, that, that uh, Cook County Jail performance. Well, first of all, that's, that's a record that a lot of people know. It's, it's almost as well known as any B.B. King recording, so I thought it was a good starting point. It's also right after he crosses over to become a global sort of superstar uh, and and just after the period during which he was basically a, a, a huge star in the black uh, music community but hadn't really crossed over to the white music community and and they were so siloed and segregated those two communities uh, separate you know and he crosses over in 67 with great this triumphal performance at the Fillmore you know, which is kind of, that's kind of the centerpiece of the book. But this, this performance a couple of years later at Cook County Jail is, is powerful and poignant. Um, by that time, 1970, B.B. King mostly played for predominantly white audiences. I mean, he was everyone's star, but, but he was more, you know, just besotted by 
you know, kind of white guitarists and pop fans and was building on this core of, of, of black uh, patrons who'd been, you know, watching him play for 20 years. But this jail gig, he's, he's like behind, you know, the 30-foot walls, and he's playing on this stage that's literally a, a repurposed gallows where men had been hanged. And the symbolic importance of this show is that this brings him back to his black audience because he wasn't playing so much for black audiences anymore by 1970, but here he was. And it, it, it starts this wonderful tradition of B.B. King doing these charity free performances in, in jails and prisons. And he does dozens of them over the course of the 1970s. So it just seemed like a kind of vivid scene that caught our hero right in the middle of his newfound fame, but going back to his roots. And that's kind of where I, where I, where I got that idea to start with that scene. Uh, there's obviously uh, some some hardcore blues fans that uh, recognize a lot of the names that you mentioned uh, at the beginning of our conversation. I think maybe for like a more mainstream audience, uh, there's a couple names that probably come to mind when the blues comes up. BB uh, King, obviously one of them. Muddy Waters, probably the other one. And Muddy Waters has a, a really strong connection to the the city of Chicago, moving here and helping develop the the electric blues sound. How would you describe King's relationship to the city of Chicago? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, that's my perspective. Is I'm looking southward from Chicago when I go back over the years. Um, right, Muddy and and Howlin' Wolf uh, had come from Mississippi up to Chicago and became the sort of deities of that music scene. BB didn't go that far. He he stopped at Memphis. He he joked that Chicago was too cold. Um, and if he if he'd gone to Chicago, I don't know what direction his his career might have gone in. But he stayed in Memphis, which was kind of the regional capital of rhythm and blues, and became the sort of icon of kind of the Memphis urban blues scene. He only actually stayed in Memphis really for a few years. Um, after his first number one hit in 1952 with uh, three o'clock blues, he becomes somebody who every single day of his life, he was in a different hotel in a different city. He spent a lot of time in Chicago. I think it's, I think it's absolutely crucial that all three of his big iconic live albums, they all happened in Chicago. So that's kind of fascinating, isn't it? The Regal, of course, is famous. The Cook County Jail recording equally so. And Tucked in the middle of those is a third Chicago album, Blues is King, which was recorded in 1967. It features not really hits so much as sort of deep cuts from B.B. King's repertoire. And it's an angry album. It's a passionate album. It's, it's kind of a, almost a concept album. Um, he just, his, his second marriage had just fallen apart. And he sings with anger and, and passion throughout that set. Um, uh, Scott Barretta, the, the great blues hound down in Mississippi, told me that that's his favorite B.B. King record. And, you know, it might, it might just be mine. So there's a huge, huge amount of Chicago in B.B. King's uh, career and life. And he kept returning there. And, and it's just interesting some of his highest points happen in Chicago. But he never quite became a Chicagoan because, well, after about 1952, he wasn't really a citizen of anywhere. He was just all over the world. I mean, never in one place for, for long. And then I wanted to follow up on uh, one of those albums you mentioned, the uh, live, the the Regal. I think he records that in 64, and then it's released in 65. And, of course, over a career as long as his, there are several of these uh, milestone moments. But would you say Live at the Regal is a, a pretty big moment in his career? Oh, yeah. Um, 
there's this whole arc of his kind of crossover from being this huge star in, in black music to being kind of like, you know, beloved by the whole nation and, and the whole world. The, the recording of that record is, is a huge step. Um, that's at a time when still 98% of his fans were, were black. But that gets recorded. It gets released. Um, I, I picture it kind of reaching the hands of a lot of young, kind of mostly white, kind of rock guitarists, um, people like Santana uh, talked of hearing this record. Mick Fleetwood from Fleetwood Mac talked of hearing this record and falling in love with it. It, it kind of was a huge ingredient in this crossing over, which eventually led to B.B. doing this, this great gig at the Fillmore in San Francisco in 1967, which is literally like his, just about his first big gig in front of a white audience, which is kind of the moment of his crossover to where he's a, an American you know, blues star period, not, not just in one silo or in the other, but, you know, everybody's star, basically. And it, just to go along with that, another uh, period of time that, that goes to that is when he uh, tours for the Rolling Stones in 69. Yeah, the, 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 the sequence of events that leads to his kind of global fame, if you look at the Live at the Regal in Chicago as one step on that road, and then he starts playing for big, you know, kind of white audiences. The white pop music fans discover him. He goes on Carson. He goes on Ed Sullivan. And maybe the biggest of all these things as far as kind of, you know, his recognition in the, in the larger audience of pop fans, it's the tour with the Stones in 1969. I think it's in October and maybe into November of 69. It's an epic tour, one of the famous rock and roll tours. And B.B., opens for the Stones, and you know who else opens for them is Ike and Tina. Um, it's hard to imagine the Stones enlisting those two bands to open for them. I mean, <laughs> they, must, they must have been pretty brave, right? Yeah. I mean, that's like one, those are two of the most powerful, you know, bands in the world, opening for the Stones. And, and, but yeah, but that introduced B.B. to a whole new audience, young pop fans, rock and roll fans, blues fans, and, and it, his career just goes up and up and up from there. Yeah, I wouldn't want to follow Tina Turner doing anything. But uh, no, no. <laughs> you mentioned some of the, uh, you know, there's this long list of legends who credit King as uh, a big influence, a lot of those rock guitar heroes. Are, are there other examples of King's artistry influencing contemporary music today? Yeah, yeah. So the reason I really wrote the book, I wanted to, I wanted to make a case for anyone who cared to read it that B.B. King took an existing sort of lineage of solo guitar of virtuosity, and there weren't many guitarists playing solos in any prominent way in the 40s and into the 50s. It, was not a, it wasn't a prevalent instrument. It was a backbench instrument. So the fact that B.B. was singing and playing the guitar in itself was unusual. He took a, a, a small tradition of solo guitar and took it to, I would say, the next level. He created a style of solo that was patterned after the human voice. This is where you get Lucille. B.B. King sings, and then he throws it over to Lucille, and his guitar sings. And this is extremely This is his genius. This is his contribution, is that he found a new way to play the guitar that in, incorporated elements of his forebears, you know, prior electric guitarists, but he added new elements, this kind of vocal sort of cry and this kind of lyricism. And then for a bunch of years, he just tours around the country playing this way, and ever so gradually, because the guitar still isn't very popular, but ever so gradually, these other guitarists come onto the scene. I'm talking here about 
Buddy Guy, Albert King, Freddie King, Sun Seals, Otis Rush, who play like B.B. King, basically. I mean, they, they develop their own styles, but they're inspired by him. And then all of them, their music goes over to Britain and is discovered by Clapton and Page and Beck and David Gilmore and Hendrix, who was playing in, in London. And then they all bring it back to the United States and, and introduce it really for the first time to the broader swath of American white guitarists and fans who had not heard it because of the ridiculous segregated silos in our music industry. Um, and so th that's how important I think B.B. King is. He's absolutely crucial in the history of the electric guitar, which, is, which becomes front and center, thanks to his work, for the whole rest of the century, really, up until you, you know, through Prince, The Edge, Jack White, uh, the, the guitarist from Wilco, all the way up to the end of the century. B.B. King's sound is sort of the pervasive go-to guitar sound for virtually, I mean, not every single artist. There were other strains of guitar, like the Chuck Berry style, which is kind of a rhythm as lead style of guitar. There was the rockabilly sound. There was, there was slide, uh, Dwayne Allman, Bonnie Raitt. But the mainstream of electric solo guitar, it all sounded like B.B. King. That's the point of my book, was to, was to put him at the beginning of that and at the center of it. And we really, we just scratched the, the surface. It's a comprehensive well, yeah. biography. Daniel, I really enjoyed the book, and I appreciate you coming on to talk with us. Uh, it's always an honor to speak uh, in my hometown on, on any platform. That was Daniel Divisay, the author of King of the Blues, The Rise and Reign of B.B. King. It's available everywhere books are sold. You're tuned in to WDCB. This is the Arts Section. My name's Gary Zydek. A unique speaker system is opening up new avenues for artists who work in sound. The one-of-a-kind 16-channel speaker system was created by the Chicago Laboratory for Electroacoustic Theater, also known as CLEAT. Oftentimes, multi-channel audio is the province of academic institutions. It's something that happens kind of in a more rarefied, more cloistered environment. This is Stefan Moore, a sound artist, professor at Northwestern University, and the creator of the Cleet speaker system. It has so much expressive potential. We're really interested with this system to have it exist outside of the university and outside of uh, a lot of kind of gatekeeping. And thanks to a partnership with Chicago-based Elastic Arts, the Cleet system is now accessible to a wider audience. The cutting-edge speakers reside at the Logan Square neighborhood venue, which presents a monthly Cleet listening and performance series. Artists working in sound are able to push boundaries even further thanks to the system's 16 omnidirectional hemisphere speakers. I recently caught up with Moore and one of the other Cleet co-founders and curators, Matt Tess, to learn more about the Chicago Laboratory for Electroacoustic Theater. The idea to create a multi-channel audio performance organization in the Chicago area was hatched around 2018. A few years back, uh, Matt and... Uh, Sam were uh, students of mine at Northwestern University in the Sound Arts and Industries master's program there. And Matt, in particular, had a real passion for 
electroacoustic music and multi-channel music and wrote a thesis paper talking about the potential for electronic sound and theater to connect with each other. We decided it would be really fun to be able to find ways to promote this uh, in the community directly because we did we saw a need for it and we didn't see other places where it was really happening. So for a little while, we tried to find our own space, uh, our own venue, and that that's turned out to be uh, overwhelming and difficult. And then we worked with uh, an organization called uh, the Prop Theater that did a, a was, was really wonderful, allowed us to do some programming and have uh, speakers in there for a while. But we were re- really looking for a more permanent home. So uh, Elastic Arts uh, was mentioned as a, as a possibility. We spoke to them and they've been such a wonderful and generous uh, home for the, the speakers to, to live in and for us to, you know, allowing us to offer programming there and invite artists in to come in and work with our system. The Cleat system was installed in late 2019, and the performance series was just getting started when the pandemic erupted. It was November 2019 that we installed the speakers there and um, got everything up and running and working. Uh, our first concert with the speakers at Elastic was uh, late January of 2020. We also had a concert in February of 2020, and we were scheduled to have concerts in March, April, May, and June that were already lined up. And, uh, and then, of course, as we all know, in early March, uh, the world uh, changed a little bit. And so we've been waiting for our, our opportunity to reemerge like so many other arts organizations have. You might be wondering how a 16-channel speaker system works. Test and more explain. So it is 16 speakers arranged in a 4x4 grid hung in the ceiling. The speakers themselves look a little bit like they're a little UFO-esque. They're kind of these hemisphere speakers. They really kind of create an environment, so it's really something that you, that lets you kind of live inside the sound. So if you can think of a grid above you as as sort of the, the quadrants that you can move through. With 16 speakers up there and not arranged in a normal surround sound system where they're just kind of in a line around you, but uh, kind of covering the whole ceiling, it really gives you the chance to move sound around amidst the audience near and far. There's about 10 feet between each speaker. So it kind of fills up the entirety of the Elastic Arts uh, uh, space, meaning that uh, as an artist, I can send sounds into any corner of the room. Uh, I can have the sounds kind of converging to a certain point or spreading out. And that whole dimension of, of space and location with the sounds is really uh, uh, liberated in, in an interesting way uh, uh, artistically, uh, which gives a dimension of freedom that artists don't normally get to work with when they're creating uh, electronic music. There are a number of strategies that different artists employ and and a a number of ways that people approach the space, like the ability to move sound quickly from different points into the space and really follow a single gesture or to really kind of create 
an immersive environment and really feel like it's all around you with subtle differences from if you would walk to this side of of the room you get kind of a different experience and different things are happening and then you move to the other side and it's an entirely different little scene we've had people make sonic haunted houses we've had people use it really in a a pointillist kind of way where you really have a symphony of 16 different speaker instruments that are all doing uh, their own thing. And then you really get to walk through it. It's like kind of uh, taking a tour right through the middle of an orchestra. So there really are a number of of different ways to to approach this kind of, of work that is really specific to having the system in place. Moore says each of the 16 channels is capable of disseminating different sounds. One of the things that's really unique about this system uh, is that uh, unlike a lot of surround sound kinds of systems, there is no sweet spot to it. There is no ideal place to sit. Because the speakers uh, are omnidirectional speakers, they send out sound in all directions. Uh, there is no bad seat. And if you asked uh, someone to point to where a sound is coming from, uh, no matter where they are, are in the room, they'd all be pointing to the same uh, point uh, on the ceiling. So you have this ability to work with space that feels very different from the normal kind of surround sound paradigm of, of trying to uh, create a convincing image that replaces the room you're in. If you're just tuning in, this is the Arts Section. My name is Gary Zydek. I'm talking with Stefan Moore and Matt Test, two of the founders of the Chicago Laboratory for Electroacoustic Theater. The organization, also known as CLEAT, is aiming to provide sound experiences that traditionally haven't been easily accessible. Multi-channel audio performance spaces are fairly rare outside of academic institutions. There are a number of places on university campuses uh, uh, throughout the world where you can go and work with an eight-speaker surround system, for example. But I can count on one hand the number of regular venues that have a multi-channel speaker system in them. There's a place called Envelop in San Francisco. There's a place called Black Hole in in Los Angeles. There's a a place in New Jersey called the Honk Tweet, which is a reference to sort of a derogatory description of uh, electronic music. And then there's there's this uh, situation uh, at Elastic. And if there are other ones out there, I'm not aware of them in the U.S. So that's, that's four of us. Um, And each of those systems is fairly uh, unique and individual uh, in terms of what it does. This is the only venue that I'm aware of that uses the kinds of hemisphere speakers that we have. It's a uh, a speaker design that uh, I participated in creating along with a few other musicians and acousticians, uh, Curtis Bond, Dan Truman, Perry Cook, uh, came out of some research at Princeton University back in the late 90s. I started building these speakers uh, about 20 years ago now. And there's a whole separate business called Isabel Audio. Uh, They're often used for laptop orchestras, which is a kind of uh, ensemble that some universities uh, will will work with. A lot of people use them for their own personal kind of performance systems uh, or use them in sound installations. But in terms of having 16 of these speakers uh, in a system, this is the only 
place, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure I can say with authority, this is the only place on earth where you can uh, work with these speakers in this way. We've been focusing a lot on the hardware aspects of Cleat, but as far as the art that can be presented using the 16th speaker system, there's a wide array of options. What's the uh, the spectrum of the type of works that can be presented with the system? Could we see everything from musical concerts to theatrical storytelling? That's right. The kind of programming that we have sort of lined up is is incredibly diverse and really runs the gamut from sort of more electroacoustic music concerts pieces that have video component with kind of a sonic score to kind of pieces that are more movement or dance based that use the system to reflect the gestures that are going on in the the movement performance to 16 channel radio plays we're very excited that that artists will come in and show us ways of using the speakers that are completely outside of anything that we've imagined so far. Uh, we really want to throw the doors open to artists who are interested in working with sound in creative ways. Um, oftentimes, multi-channel audio is the province of academic institutions. Uh, it's, it's, the, the, it's, it's something that happens kind of in a more rarefied, more cloistered environment, and it has so much expressive potential. We're really interested with this system to have it exist outside of a university and outside of uh, a lot of kind of gatekeeping. Our programming really right now is an interesting mix of artists who have come to us with specific ideas and specific projects that they really want to do on the system and maybe haven't had an opportunity to work on a system like this before, but have a very strong idea for what they want to do. So some of them have approached us and some of the artists are folks who may have never worked on a system like this before and may not have even considered working on a system like this before, but um, are folks that we approach to sort of invite them to imagine what could exist in a 16-channel space like this and to reimagine their work in a spatial environment to see what might happen. And this seems like such a unique platform. Are there artists equipped to utilize the system's full potential, or is, or is that something where your team will come in to help the artists realize their vision? I mean, there are some artists that we're working with, I think especially in the early days here, who already are thinking in terms of multi-channel audio, although maybe not with this system, but other kinds of systems in mind, uh, who will come in and have some idea of how to approach this and, and, and go towards it. We are very interested in artists who are coming at this with maybe less technical experience or who are curious about the potential for this, but haven't really been thinking about this way previously. And we, um, you know, I, 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 as a team, we're 
very interested in working with these artists to make sure that they have the technical support that they need to get themselves up and running. Uh, and I'd say that's even already happened that we've had a, a, a few folks perform uh, where they're, uh, we've been able to sort of hold their hand a little bit. Uh, they're expert music makers, expert composers, expert performers, uh, and they have uh, so much to say creatively, but this technical piece is not one that they've encountered a whole lot before. We've been able to uh, um, help them uh, find how they want to express themselves uh, in the system just by spending some time meeting with them. And, and really, it's, it's just about time and and space and uh, giving people an opportunity to, to, to work and make discoveries. So I do a, a weekly theater segment on the show with a couple local critics where they review new productions. And we've seen an explosion of virtual productions because of the pandemic and what that came, uh, a resurgence of sorts of radio plays with some theater companies deciding to create new work solely with audio. And so, you know, hearing about the, the capabilities of Cleed, it seems like a, a potential fit for theater companies that have created radio plays for, for them to present the work live using your system. Absolutely. Yeah, I think you're, you're right on with that. And I think it's everything from, from concert music uh, in the most traditional sense to more experimental kinds of music to radio plays to things that are hybrids and, and you know, maybe forms we haven't even quite imagined yet. But um, we're hoping every summer to do uh, maybe a more extended festival uh, that actually investigates this idea of electroacoustic theater, maybe kind of poses the question, what is electroacoustic theater? Uh, and uh, how, if we say those words to a whole variety of makers, like what does that inspire them to make or what direction does that uh, suggest to them? That was Stefan Moore, and we also heard from Matt Test. They're two of the co-founders of the Chicago Laboratory for Electroacoustic Theater, also known as CLEAT. The CLEAT Listening and Performance Series continues at Elastic Arts. You can find out more about what's coming up by visiting elasticarts.org. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the program. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. I hope you enjoy your Sunday afternoon. If you happen to be a fan of the National Football League, it's a great day. Thanks for listening. <laughs>